Please note that today's episode was recorded on Thursday night, prior to Friday's apparent breakthrough in Brexit talks. But we think that many of the points discussed about Theresa May's weak position and the dilemmas facing Britain as it negotiates its exit from the EU are still entirely relevant. So we've left this episode in its original form. Enjoy. We have been very clear uh, Northern Ireland must leave uh, the European Union on the same terms as the rest of the United Kingdom and we will not accept any form of regulatory divergence which separates Northern Ireland uh, economically or politically from the rest of the UK and the economic uh, and constitutional integrity of the United Kingdom must not be compromised uh, in any way. That was DUP leader Arlene Foster throwing a spanner in the works of Brexit negotiations on Monday by essentially vetoing the proposed deal on the Irish border. What does it say about Theresa May and the UK government that they can be so easily thwarted, and how can any of this end well for the Prime Minister? Plus, we're discussing the US policy change on the status of Jerusalem, the battle for the soul of the Labour Party, and Time Magazine's choice for Person of the Year. All of that coming up today, Friday the 8th of December 2017, on Update the State. Well, for a while on Monday, it looked like it was all going rather well. There were talks about uh, a Brexit deal between Britain and the EU, and we were going to be able to move on to trade talks. But then suddenly, uh, thanks to the DUP, remember them? Those guys who propped up the, uh, the government after the shambles that was the June election, uh, eventually put a spanner in the works and cost the Theresa May her Brexit deal. We're going to be talking about that and lots, lots more today on the Update the State podcast. My name's Dave Bradshaw. Welcome to the show. Joining me is the Communications Director uh, for Debate Mate, Alex Dugan, and Trainee Barrister, Josh Hitchens. Welcome to both of you. All right, we've got a lot to talk about. Let's get straight underway. We, you can hear the chimes of Big Ben. We're going to do four different topics uh, in 15 minutes each, as always, on this week's Update the State. All right, so where else to start? than what we were just talking about, the collapse of those uh, Brexit talks. As I say, at the start of Monday, it sounded like it was all going very well indeed. Uh, then part way through the day, Arlene Foster, the DUP leader, gave a press conference where she said it would be unpalatable for uh, the, the DUP members of Parliament for there to be any kind of Brexit deal uh, where Northern Ireland was treated differently to the rest of the UK. And after that, Theresa May ended up going home empty-handed. Josh, it's been quite a week. What do you make of it? Um, it's been a very, very interesting week. I think, I think Arlene Foster's right, actually. I think it is unpalatable for any for us to have two separate arrangements within the United Kingdom when it comes to the customs union, when it comes to single market, when it comes to freedom of movement. Um, the answer, however, is for us to have the same arrangement across the whole of the UK that was going to be in place in Northern Ireland, i.e. there should be regulatory alignment between the UK and the European Union because it's in our national interest for that to happen. Equally, we should be looking very seriously at access to the single market and very seriously at continued membership of the customs union. Um, Now, I think the most telling thing this week is just how fragile Theresa May is. She is teetering on the brink and every week she comes closer and closer and closer to the edge. So this week, we've had the Defence Secretary ban the Chancellor from using MOD planes. (laughs) We've had the DUP veto the constitutional arrangement for 65 million people and potentially our history over generations with eight MP- how many MPs have got in the, the, the House of Commons is it eight I think eight um, or ten so ten. A, a, yeah. small a, neg- yeah. a small number a negligible number anyway we've got news David Davis isn't speaking to Theresa May and vice versa Damien Green might have to resign and now this, we've had the obviously the impact assessment debacle as well I think it's just been a humiliating week for the government can I add to this as well just, just to add the humiliation front it's something I think we're going to talk about later as well Boris Johnson on Thursday uh, was giving a major policy speech and he left out the portion of his speech that criticised Trump about Jerusalem so you have a week of defiance from members of the cabinet. You have a week of infighting from members of the cabinet. And you have a week of, for the first time, people internally in the Tory party seriously considering, are we better off without Theresa May? And that is something that's going through the minds of, the Tory, of serious members of the Tory party, um, the parliamentary party at the moment. Mm-hmm. And this week has been absolutely detrimental to those chances going forward. However, let's look at what the basis of Arlie and Foster's uh, claims are um, and f- from what I understand this all kind of stemmed from a single report 
from an RTE journalist, you know, someone who's very listened to him and very uh, has a very high esteem uh, over there in the, the Irish politics world. But they got the wording slightly mixed up with their statement, right? I, I can't remember the particulars, but it was whether it was to do with alignment or a different word. And this single word is what caused Arlene Foster and others to get very shaky, what caused several members within her party who are like looking for a power grab at the power of the, at the leadership of the DUP to sit and say, oh, no, we will not accept this. And that is what caused Arlene Foster to go out. So, it's this, so you can kind of trace it a little bit back to this. But in general, I think Josh is right in terms of saying that this regulatory alignment it should be something that happens anyway. I mean, that wasn't... My understanding was that Theresa May had to break off from the talks and call Arlene Foster. Yeah, because uh, they have a they have a veto. Obviously, the DUP. One the, of the terms of the confidence and supply motion is that the DUP have a veto over any arrangements with Brexit and, and Northern Ireland. So you've got a situation where the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is having to break off from negotiations with the heads of state and government of the Twenty Seven to ring a woman with MP, you know, less than ten MPs. Now. That is a humiliating state of affairs for a British Prime Minister to be in, and totally, totally unsatisfactory. It is, but from what, again, from what I understand, I, what I think the procedure was pre- before that phone call had to be made, is that the DUP, senior figures in the DUP had seen a general outline. They had not had the specific wording of what the agreement was between the Irish government and the British government. And that's a problem in the communication process, well, process between the two parties. And that, yeah. if, if, that if a communication process mm. has fucked up the trade deal for Britain has put us back another three months in this entire process that is a serious mishandling of the situation by government is something that they should be held accountable for. Might might it be that actually in the long run, I'm sure at the moment Theresa May and and those who support her within the government are kicking themselves right, you know, if only this election hadn't happened in June we wouldn't have to rely on the DEP and we wouldn't have this problem but if Josh is right and and what, and you know, and actually it would be the right thing for for the regulatory framework to be the same for all parts of the UK it may be that Arlene Foster somehow has done done Britain a favour because if if we did go ahead with if the government would, had not been opposed by the DUP on having different rela- different terms for different parts of the UK that might have made our union less stable going forward do you think because Scotland were you know Nicola Sturgeon was saying very much the same thing about yeah. about it afterwards. I don't disagree. I, I think part of this is the EU's fault, though. And the reason I think that is because a lot of these issues with the Irish border could conceivably be totally resolved through a comprehensive trade agreement. Um, what I mean by that is there may well be regulatory alignment in any case. Hmm. There may well be systems in place which allow um, border-free access between Ireland and the UK as part of a trade deal. But we can't start negotiating that trade deal until we've agreed... The issue with the Irish border, which is just a totally illogical way of doing it. They're, they're one in the same. So part of this is, is the EU's fault. And I think part of this is a deliberate strategy that the EU to try and extract as much money as they can get as possible. I think that's the real issue at the moment. Um, let's talk a little bit more about why Theresa May uh, maybe can't go for that sort of regulatory alignment type position that the DUP are, are, are talking yeah. about, right? And one of the reasons is, perhaps, is that, as you say, she's so weak within her own party and there is a significant wing of the Conservative Party who still want this hard Brexit where they want to sever as many ties with Europe as possible and go for more of a Canadian free trade deal than perhaps a sort of a Norwegian, you know, EFTA EFTA type situation, right? Um, And so Boris and Michael Gove would be the the, the two obvious names there. But I was reading something, I think it was by Laura Koonsberg actually on the BBC website, right, saying... There needs to be a conversation, and it hasn't actually happened yet with, with Theresa May and her cabinet, where she hasn't put her cards on the table and picked one of those two sides. Look, this is what I envision as the relationship Britain will have with Europe after we leave. Because until it's almost like kicking the can down the road, and there's got to be an argument in that cabinet at some point, and she's trying to avoid it for as long as possible, but that day is coming. Well, yes. Exactly right. And it's not, it's not just in the cabinet, it's in the parliamentary party as a whole. You've got to remember, the majority of Tory MPs were Remainers. They don't believe in leave. But you've got, you know, it's actually not totally dissimilar to um, the situation in the Labour Party, where you've got a quite extreme base and a fairly moderate parliamentary party. Yeah, I think her position is totally untenable. So, to sum up the position of the cabinet, I'd like to turn to the wonderful orator of Ed Miliband, where he <laughs> sent out a tweet... A, um, a few days ago now, saying 
what an absolute ludicrous, incompetent, absurd, absurd, sorry, make us up as you go along, couldn't run a piss up in brewery, bunch of jokers there are running the government at the most crucial time in a generation for the country. That pretty much sums up, quite neatly, how the cabinet is performing at the moment. They are each running their own little, their own little fiefdoms, their own little departments, going on with what this kind of vague idea of Brexit is going about. But cabinet are unified over what the outcome for Britain is going to be from this. And as a result, no wonder there's a mix-up in Parliament. No wonder people are confused about what things are going on. No wonder there's mixed messages coming from different members of different places. Because they have not got a unified idea of what they want to get out of the negotiation mm. process. And if, if what you're, you want to get out of the negotiation process varies from individual to individual mm. to individual, it creates a massive problem for British foreign policy going forward and British foreign policy further abroad as well. And that's why we find ourselves up in the mess that we're I in. It's, I think it's the other way around, though. I think what we need to do as a country is work out what direction we want to go and what our priorities are, separate from Brexit. Because we're in an absolute rut. We have never wielded less influence on the world stage than we do mm. now. Um, people are poorer ten years ago... Mm. Um, sorry, poorer today than they were ten years ago, which is totally unprecedented in our history. We've got rocketing mental health issues. We've got all these really profound issues as a society. And we need to work out what our priorities are, what kind of country we want to look like in five years' time, and then design the Brexit that we try and achieve around our ambitions as a country. But that's the problem, right? Is that, I mean, that's, that's a very nice sentence, right, to say, oh, we need to decide what kind of country we want to be. But that's the thing, we can't agree on that. You know, yeah. we're, we're, a very, we're a very split country, you know, 52-48 in the referendum for one thing, but it, it goes deeper than that. There are huge divisions yeah. in what kind of vision different people have for, for our country. And also it's very volatile. Like the, We don't have an electorate where you know, 40% are always going to vote Tory, 40% are always going to vote Labour, and there's just 20% moving in the middle. It's a much more um, mobile electorate than it used to be, and that creates volatility. Yeah, but people have underlying priorities. People want well-funded public services. Mm. They want to be getting better off year on year. They want pay rises every year. They want a decent health service. Mm. Um, there are things that everyone in this country wants. We will agree on. So let's work out what is most important... Or let the Tory, but let Cabinet work out what they think are their uttermost priorities and then design a Brexit, because it will affect everything Brexit, around those priorities. Mm. Not delay the entire work of government at a time where, as a country, we're in a complete rut. But isn't that what Cabinet Brexit. does? That's what Cabinet... That's, I mean, I'm sure that's... If you ask any politician, yeah. if you ask Michael Gove, but if you ask Philip Hammond, they will say, well, that's what we do, but we just fundamentally disagree on how to do it. I mean, that's... You know, it's sort of saying, well, yeah, we've got to, we've got to say, we've got to work out what we think is best for the country. But that's what politics is, isn't it? Competing ideas about that. But what I'm saying is actually what has happened is the the Conservative Party and to a lesser extent the Labour Party have become divided, not on where they sit in terms of economics, not on what they think the right um, approaches are to social issues. None of these things are being debated. None of these things are being addressed. The entire focus of Westminster is on what type of Brexit we want. Mm. And I'm saying what type of Brexit we want should be determined by the kind of country we want to live in and what our main priority, uh, policy priorities well, are. You know, to sum up, to kind of, I think, build on what Josh is saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're focusing so much on this agreement, focusing so much on the issue of, A, the bill that we're going to pay the EU, B, the trade deal that's going to come as a result of it, where... And other things are being neglected. And other things, which I think Josh is, what Josh is getting to as well, is that these, these issues shape our country going forward. And at a massive point in history where you have the opportunity to make a massive, a big statement and set the tone for the political discourse that goes forward for the next century, this is a time to think about it. This is a time where, where social mobility, talking about that, is important. This is a time when talking about the NHS is important, but doesn't happen at the moment. This is why Alan Milburn and others from the Social Mobility Commission are resigning. They, you, see it in, you see it permeating different levels of government, different levels of quangos, whatever you want to call them. The people who are there to deal with these single issues are getting no time in front of cabinet, no time in front of ministers, no time in front of parliament. And these are things that are fundamental mm. to the running and the vision of the country that we have going forward. But this is like, so hang on, but I don't know if, if people are going to listen to this and agree that, oh, it's not being talked about. So, for example, Labour supporters will tell you that, well, that's exactly what Jeremy Corbyn was talking about during the election. Because if you think but about that's, it, well, the whole, the, whole, the whole debate, you know, the whole sort of tactical discussion that was going on around the election with sort of political observers was, well, the Conservatives are trying to make this a Brexit election, Jeremy Corbyn's trying to talk about exactly. you know, the NHS, uh, but 
whatever you think about how well Jeremy Corbyn did, the fact of the matter is, his side were the ones talking about public services, and it was the Conservatives who ended up as the biggest party. Yeah, still. but look where his personal opinion polls were before the election. Mm. And at the backdrop of that, they didn't, the Tories didn't get a majority. Why not? The reason they didn't, I would suggest, is because all the things I mentioned earlier in terms of life chances, ambition, um, social mobility, public services, that's what people care about. But here's an idea, let's just not de-Brexit. Like, look, 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 look at what is happening. Mm. So right now we're looking at pay, paying £40 billion. That's five years of our budget contributions um, to the EU anyway. Um, in addition to ongoing payments, which will total many, many billions. And what are we getting in return for that? Mm. We're, immigration will continue at least five, for at least the, fi- the five-year period, um, unchecked immigration. ECJ, in reality, the ECJ is still going to retain some supervisory role over the UK um, judicial system for that period at least. We're going to have total... I mean, in reality, everybody knows we're going to have a continuation of all EU law into domestic law. So what is the point? And what what has it delivered us? We've got, for the first time in modern British history... Growth forecast for every single year of the forecast is under 2%. And we're already the slowest growing country in the G7. Mm. We've got to do better than this. And we're not going to if we do Brexit. And I think people are going to realise what they promised is not going to be delivered. And the future of Britain outside the European Union is not a rosy one. But I, mean, I just don't know. If, yeah, I agree with you entirely because I'm a Remainer, of course. But like, but I'm not, how are you going to convince the country of that? I mean, there's no, I don't see where that... I don't see any movement in the opinion polls, despite the kind that, of chaos. That, that, in the that is the sort. issue mm. at the moment. The reason why that you don't see a lot, one of the reasons why you don't see a larger Remain kind of rebellion amongst the Conservative MPs is because the lo- the countries remained largely the same in terms mm. of the split between a fifty-two forty-eight or somewhere circa the same. So whatever's going on at the moment is not winning the narrative for a Remain side. But I think people are too trepidatious, and no one is wholeheartedly arguing for fuck this. Let's go back to what we had. Yeah. Mm. And there'll, there'll come a day where politicians can't blame the EU anymore. Yep. There'll come a day where this us versus them rhetoric that gets everyone kind of... It's not going to work anymore. Mm. And when that day comes, people take a hard look at the reality of what Brexit will mean for them and their families, and they'll realise they don't want it. I'm sure of it. Now, lastly, before we move on, because the chimes did go, but I, w- I do want to just briefly come back to what Josh said about uh, Theresa May's position being untenable, mm. right? which I, I find very interesting, because... I think I think that's absolutely right. And this whole thing about kicking the can down the road in terms of having that conversation in cabinet, well, we're, as I said, we are getting to a day where that conversation is going to have mm. to happen. And I don't see how she she's in a no win situation. She either annoys the Boris Gove wing of the party, or she annoys the you know the sort of soft Brexiteers, well, well who were Remainers in the party. Yeah. Either way, at the conclusion of that discussion, how does Theresa May retain enough confidence within her party? To stay as leader, because I'm not sure. I, I don't want to be melodramatic. I'm not sure. I'm not even sure she lasts till Christmas. I don't. I just don't see how this how this ends well for her. We see this is this is this is the tragic thing at this crucial juncture in our history. I think what will determine which side prevails is whichever seems to have the upper hand within the Conservative Party at the time. Yep. I.e., which is going to be most advantageous for Theresa May to back, which is totally scandalous given how important the decisions made over the next few months will be for our country over the next 50 years. Alex, do you agree with that, that the future of our country is sort of being determined more based on a survival strategy for the Tory party than what's in the national interest? Yeah, because we put it this way, Theresa May is losing confidence, as we've all spoken about, the parliamentary party now talking about replacing her, seriously, rather than it being like a back idea. They would never let this go to the membership. It's not going to be something that goes to the Tory party membership. They're going to sort yeah. it out as they did before in the parliamentary party. And the others are going to resign before it. they have to go to the membership and sit there and have a massive public infight in front of the entire media. Now, that solely means that it's up to the MPs. And that is such a ridiculous and dangerous position for us to be in. You would hope... If it got to that point, or from a pragmatic perspective, you would hope that um, the kind of Remain side of the Tory MPs, which is the vast majority, kind of push forward on an individual and are able to overcome. Mm. But, again, it's not a fight that they want to have. They do that, their base is gone. Yep. If they can become a remaining party, the base is gone. I mean... mean, That that brings UKIP back in, or a similar party. Yeah, well, let me ask you... Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, let let me ask you, Dave... Mm. Um, Given that you used to be a Lib Dem, could you see an SDLP Mark II maybe 
No. Come, you coming from the Tory party? still a Lib Dem, by the way. But um, uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I just don't see... I think if there was going to be a centrist party emerge, it would have happened far earlier in this in the Corbyn era than it than, than we you know, know are. But, but, you got, but the problem now is you've got the dual pressure. Mm. You've got the pressure from the left and you've got the pressure from the right. That is creating a demand for a sense... Oh, I yeah. would say a sensible, others may not say, I would say sensible... SDLP style centrist party like openly centrist party not trying to sell themselves on anything else Mm. where they pick from my perspective the sensible view on issues the pragmatic view on issues and that is seeing something where the the, the Tories to the left of the Tory party are sitting there thinking I'm becoming by the day more uncomfortable about being this Mm. party those to the right of Labour towards the centre of Labour I am becoming by the Mm. day more uncomfortable being this party I'm I'm actively being forced out Mm. And it creates the political demand on an upper level, mm. and the social demand is uh, is working towards it. Probably isn't quite there yet, but it's working towards that point. Right, well, we're we're going to have to Blair Institute's up to actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, we're, we're going to have to move on because we are way into our uh, second segment. But it's a very interesting point, and I suppose the Lib Dems aim to be that centrist party, but obviously <laughs> given their current level of yeah, um, level, <laughs> level of influence, um, maybe it's not. Exactly happening. Although, interestingly as well, last point, very, very last point, I promise. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see that that hasn't happened in America, right? Because I, I think there's an institutional point about two-party systems. Yeah. The structure of two parties, not to get too academic here, yeah. but, like, but given how, <laughs> let's put it politely, diverse the Republican Party is in America, and there are some people who absolutely would not be political bedfellows with the people who are in that party. Yeah. Same with the Democrats now that that whole Bernie Sanders wing has appeared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that we've not seen a third party emerge in the US system either is, interesting. is very interesting. Is. Money! Well, Money. exactly, yes. All right, well, we're going to move on to actually a, a, a related subject. There's a story that's just come out in the last couple of days that's quite interesting, and we'll, we'll broaden this out to a wider discussion about the organisation in question. But Momentum, the uh, left-wing Labour pressure group, I don't know if that's what we call them, campaign group, um, are being investigated by the Electoral Commission to see whether they broke finance rules during this year's uh, general election. It's, it's a slightly dry subject, but it's about, basically about whether they exceeded uh, donation limits for individuals and, and groups who were sponsoring, who were funding their activities. Um, interesting that Momentum are being pulled into this. It's something that's affected all of the main political parties, mm. uh, and now they're getting... Uh, dragged into it as well. Um, I don't really want to talk about that because that's just it's, it's been announced that's being investigated. There's not much really yeah. to talk about there other than no. to note that it's happening. But it is a good chance to talk about something that's been going on with momentum for a few weeks now and that we haven't really covered yet. That there is this apparent civil war going out on within the, <laughs> the Labour movement yeah. between the momentum types, the sort of Corbynistas, yeah. if you will, and the more, I hate the word Blairites, it feels outdated, but the sort of centrists mm. uh, in the Labour Party who are generally associate themselves with a group called Progress, right? Yeah. I don't know if you saw, did you see this sort of war of words between Owen Jones and uh, Richard, Richard Angle, Angel, who's the uh, head of Progress on uh, no. so one of the Sunday shows a, a couple of weeks ago, where it was really bitter. Um, and it does sort of, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about what it means for the uh, ideological position of the Labour Party in a minute, but just in terms of pure lack of unity, at a time when we've all been just saying in the last several minutes that the Conservative government is in disarray, mm. it's not exactly ideal for the Her Majesty's opposition to be uh, at loggerheads within their own party, is it? So two things. Firstly, just before we move on to this, just a quick comment on the Electoral Commission thing. Mm. Who gives a fuck? Because you've seen what happened with the Tory party, and there was possible criminal charges to be brought against the Conservative Party as a result of their financial misspending and um, breaking the law, which was brought by the Electoral Commission, and nothing happened. So this, whilst it creates a few headlines, is a non-story. It will not lead to anything. I'll put my head, I'll put my head on the chopping block and say it will not head, lead to anything. If it does, I'm mistaken. But given precedent, it won't. Interestingly now with the Labour Party, that... Um, they don't need to be united. What is in front of them in the public discourse at the moment, as a result of cabinet fucking up all the time, as a result of individuals just giving them opportunities to win easy political points, we're not talking about policy as much as Corbyn would like to talk about policy. He had his little rant at the budget, 
and that was the policy moment. We're not talking about anything else other than Brexit and foreign policy fuck-ups and the cabinet being shit and Damien Green having porn on his computer. Those are the things that dominated the public discourse moment. So this, whilst it is there, is not a major, it's a major factor for the Labour Party internally. Mm. And yes, they must go away, they must work out what they want to be, and this fight must happen, and it's good that it's happening, but it's gonna, it has to happen and they have to come to some level of resolve before the next election. But... In like pragmatic terms, I don't think it has too much of a consequence. Well, we'll come back in a minute to this point about how effective Labour is being uh, outwardly facing in terms of um, its scrutiny of the government. But uh, Josh, what, what do you make about uh, make of all this stuff between uh, the the momentum wing and the progress wing? What what this argument between uh, Owen Jones and, and Richard Angel was about was was this claim by the, the sort of the Blairites, the centrists, mm. that they are being purged. Uh, from the party in terms of candidate selections mm. and stuff, that there is a, 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 a movement by the momentum types to have them deselected, which was always the sort of fear from the moderates when uh, Corbyn and, and, his, and his crew first came in. Um, it's still bubbling relatively under the surface for people outside the sort of political bubble, but yeah. I, I do wonder if this is going to be a, a problem that doesn't go away for Labour. There's no question that that's happening. I think at the moment it's happening very much at the council level. Mm. Um, so if you look for the... Obviously Labour's just gone through all their selections for the May 2018 local elections. And I, anecdotally, I know people, I have friends who, who have had that happen to them, who are you know moderate, progressive, progress types in the Labour Party who have been deselected. And there's no question it's happening. I think the question is, what do progress do? Because you've got a situation where structurally you, you're not going to win. You've got 600,000 members who joined under Jeremy Corbyn who are committed to the kind of momentum ideology and very easily mobilised. You've got this very powerful campaign group, Momentum, who are harassing people, who are promoting deselections. And you've got a leadership who are ideologically polar opposed to you. They're just complete. So you have two, two options, don't you? You allow yourself to be purged. You allow yourself to be marginalised. You accept that that's going to have an electoral impact on the party and you do nothing or you do something about it and that begs the question what do you do about it and I think the only viable option I know we were talking about this in the last episode is to seriously seriously consider a kind of new SDLP split and I know you, you, I know your opinion David you can't see it happening but I think when you push people to the point where they're being deselected and you're excluding them from the party they don't have very much to lose anymore sorry is that is that a, a tactical concern, regardless of whether it's the ethically the right thing to do, is that a tactical concern, c- concern for the, the Corbynistas if they push these people out, that actually they're going to reduce the size of their party? Do you know what the tactical concern for the Corbynistas should be? There's two. Firstly, despite the fact that I think we have the single worst government um, for 20 or 30 years, I mean, they're appalling, um, Labour's only just slightly ahead of the polls... The second concern, I think, is on, on a poll, you know, YouGov's latest polling saying who would make the best Prime Minister of um, Theresa May, Jeremy Corbyn or Don't Know. Don't Know's winning by quite a margin. Um, actually, they are, they are not very electorally strong at the moment. Um, and that's what should be concerning, that despite having been against the worst government that you could possibly conceive, they're still not in a position where there's a dead cert that they'd win an election. Um, Alex... Owen Jones will say, and others, others are in that momentum movement, that actually the reason they're not being purged, these sort of moderates, these Blairites from the Labour Party. What's actually happening is that their brand of politics is on the way out and that uh, a revolution is coming along the lines of, of the Corbyn-type's uh, beliefs. So is that right? Are they, are they just whining because they are yesterday's news? No. Well, it's, it's the broader thing that Blair spoke about quite eloquently and others have followed by saying that the Labour Party, whilst Owen Jones may be correct in a certain context, within a construct, he's correct. There is a wave of left-wing support within this, this realm. There's a wave of people who have aligned to that side of opinion. That is within the Labour Party. That is within Labour Party yeah. members. When yeah. you look at the electorate as a whole, what was painted at the last election was a contrast between, for your centre-left your centrist people. You had a contrast between the Conservatives who were pushing for a hard Brexit and the general narrative they were, and they were incompetent in others or you had Corbyn who A, you didn't think was going to win so the danger of voting for him was 
perhaps not as high. And B, you probably aligned yourself slightly more with the policies that were coming out of that side, and they sounded good and they went down well. Now, the problem comes there, where you are sitting and thinking, right, now, Corp is a realistic chance, and the electorate are not aligned with the Labour Party and the vision that the Labour Party have. Therefore, if you are someone of a... Uh, a, a more centrist persuasion you must seriously sit in there and be, sit there and think as Josh said I've got fuck all to lose yeah. right now I'm going to get deselected um, I have a chance with this option to forge a new way in politics yeah. all it needs is an eloquent semi well known figure mm. at the front of it and that can take off as a movement how successful it is mm. is questionable it is questionable. It's something that's tried before and hasn't had worked. But it helps shape the narrative of the election. And that is incredibly important. And as we've talking about, the entire thing at the moment is the narrative around Brexit. It's a narrative about the public belief and how that has not moved. Mm. A kickstart factor could be exactly what we're talking about here. One of, what, I will come to you, Josh, but this, again, last week as the chimes went, but... One of the things I, I was saying throughout this, and maybe I'm biased because I'm not Labour, I'm with them, but one of the things I was saying throughout the election campaign as this kind of Corbyn mania was sweeping the nation was actually, for whatever his skills as a campaigner, uh, he was a pretty dreadful opposition leader for the first 18 months he, you know, before that election campaign in terms of like holding well, first Cameron and then Theresa May to account for things they were doing. The lack of scrutiny on the big issues of the day, I always thought was a problem, and I still think it is now. I don't think you're hearing... I don't know what Labour's position is on Brexit. I'm not sure they have one, a a coherent one. And so that in itself, regardless of their internal struggles, is is a worry. Yeah, I think the most coherent... um Kind of opposite, day-to-day opposition work that you're describing, you hear, is is from um, Emily, the likes of Emily Thornbring and Keir Starmer. They're certainly not from Jeremy Corbyn. Um, I think he's a complete waste of space, total waste of skin. But um, the thing that I was going to say a second ago, when we we're talking about kind of the the, the new centre, as it were, is actually I think the work that the Tony Blair Institute is doing is actually really, really, really worthwhile. Um, they've got some fantastic um, policy proposals and policy papers. Um, and actually setting a kind of intellectual basis, an ideological basis for the centre, he's actually doing very, very, very good work at the moment. It's worth keeping an eye on that because I think it's, I think it's having a lot of influence behind the scenes. Uh, last question, same thing to you, Alex. But do you think, given what we've just said about Corbyn's effectiveness or lack thereof uh, as an opposition leader, do you think this this high in the polls that they hit during the election where they did so much better than expected is that the ceiling is that as far as this goes for Corbyn's Labour or can they now take those last few steps and become a government if there was an election tomorrow given the current incompetence of the government I can see I can clearly envision a world where Corbyn is elected Prime Minister okay right let's uh, move on we're going to go away from uh, British uh, party politics and talk about international relations and in particular yes. the latest activities of one Donald J. Trump who has uh, said on Wednesday that he has determined it is uh, quite he has determined it is time to officially officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel a move that has caused outrage throughout much of the world obviously celebrated by um, leaders in Israel but even some of the US's closest allies including Britain have said that, that they do not support that move. Obviously, anyone who knows anything about the history of the Middle East knows that Jerusalem is a very sensitive topic and that the destiny, the fate of Jerusalem has always been one of those issues that would be sort of left until the very later stage of any negotiations for a, a two-state solution. So is Donald Tr- Trump a genius who's thought of something that no one else uh, ever thought of and this is actually a much-needed step or is this another... Um, shambles in his attempts at being a world leader. Uh, this is not the first time you'll hear me say this, but Donald Trump's a fucking moron on this point. The entire point of the US in this in this discussion is being they are the self-professed were the self-professed honest broker between Israel and Palestine. And by recognizing Jerusalem, there's no way he could go forward with this proposed two-state solution that he put forward with uh, Jared Kushner as the, the head figure of putting trying to propose. There's no way that happens. Um, it's detrimental to 
US relations with other nations in the region is detrimental to the security of both nations in this situation and the general stability of entire things going forward. And as a foreign policy move, it is short-sighted, it is incredibly incendiary. And I, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to reason as to why this has come across the president's desk. Because what is, who made this an issue? And that's the problem with US politics, is that you have to look behind it and think, who made this an issue? And the only thing I think, can think of is donors to the Republican Party simply think, I want this to be a thing, I've paid you enough money, make it happen. Josh, what's your take on what's happened this week? I will just say, by the way, to build on what I said a minute ago, that that, that, talk, that thing about the fate of Jerusalem being discussed in the latter stages of peace talks actually dates back specifically to the 1993 peace accords between Israel and, and Palestine that were sort of provisionally agreed. Obviously not much progress has been made, but they were at least the basis for something. Mm-hmm. It feels like Trump has just kind of ripped away what little hope there was of any solution in that region. And, and as Alex says, has uh, removed the US from being able to even pretend to be a kind of neutral arbiter in any peace talks. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's deeply worrying. I think it's very bad for actually the US interests. I think um, the US is becoming increasingly isolated on the world stage. Um, I mean, it'd be unimaginable um, under even the Bush presidency to have the United Kingdom, France, Germany, you know, all the other major powers in the world lining up to condemn um, foreign policy decisions made by the United States. So I think the US is looking very isolated on the world stage. I think it's very, very bad for stability in the region. There's already been flare-ups of violence. Um, I actually also think it's time we, as a country and, and the British government, take a very, very long, hard look at the way we deal with Trump. I actually don't think the way um, Theresa May handled it in the early days of his, her, his presidency was worth the criticism which she's subsequently been subject to for it. Because I think we had to attempt to build a positive relationship. We had to attempt to influence that way. But what has happened since then is we have not been consulted. Um, We have been ignored. And actually the United States is consistently acting in a way that is contrary to our national interests. Things like this undermine Western solidarity and security. When Trump undermines NATO, it undermines our own security. When he pulls out of the climate accords, um, that again is contrary to our fundamental national interest. And I think there comes a point actually where we have a duty to stand up to the president. I think we're getting there. Just to give you a little bit more on what some of the international reaction has been, even Saudi Arabia have yeah. uh, called it, quote, unjustified and irresponsible. But their response, I think, was stronger than Britain's. We, yeah. we talked about this last week, about the lukewarm response yeah. to Theresa May. Last week we were talking about her response to Trump retweeting those first. Britain first things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, France and the UK, this is so weak, France and the UK said they did not support the decision. I mean, that's the most. That's the strongest language they could. Yeah, but in, they could in, in, in diplomatic terms, as a slap in the face, Saudi Arabia gone for a punch in the head. Like that's the difference between those two terms there. But also, uh, can we draw attention to uh, something I mentioned earlier? Uh, whilst we were talking about various incompetencies with the current cabinet, Boris Johnson in a speech on Thursday had scripted, and journalists have seen. Obviously, they get the pre-approved text. There was a uh, a paragraph condemning Trump for the actions to do with Jerusalem. And Johnson, up there in the moment, left that out of his speech. What does it say about a foreign secretary of the UK where there's an agreed policy statement from the head of your government and then you, in the moment, refuse to make that statement? I'm, po- I'm appalled, I'm ashamed. I think it's absolutely disgraceful that Boris... Is planned to make a statement to like reiterate how, from a prime ministerial level through to a foreign sector level, everyone who's in charge of foreign policy thinks it's a shit idea for Trump. But Boris refused to do that, and I'm furious. Josh, why do you think that would be? I mean, why would why would Boris have something that he presumably had consented to have included in a, in in the text for a speech, and then change his mind at the last minute? Is that just Boris being uh, unpredictable? I, I don't even. Even by his standards, I don't really understand why that would happen. I don't know what his motivation is, but I think it's symptomatic of having a foreign secretary who knows that he will not be dismissed under any circumstances. He can write newspaper articles undermining the prime minister. He can 
do free reign um, diplomacy. He can quote Kipling in Burma. Doesn't matter. He's safe. So, what would we do? What, what do we do, like as a country? And uh, Josh, this is Alex. I won't ask you this because this is something we actually basically discussed last week. But Josh, you went on the show last week. So, both with regard to this thing, what, you know, what, how Britain should be reacting to this Jerusalem announcement, and also how we should be reacting to Trump more generally. Yeah. You hinted at it a minute ago that we need to change our tact. But what, what, what can we, should we, be doing in terms of responding to Trump with these now weekly? idiotic things he's doing we seem so timid so afraid of of damaging that relationship particularly given you know our uh, difficult relationship with our EU allies at the moment we're almost afraid to do anything yeah I mean the thing is take take politics out of this look at the Britain first thing when that happened that was a US president supporting an extremist organisation in the United Kingdom. If any other foreign head of state did that, there would be an extremely strong rebuke from the Foreign Office. Didn't happen. Fine. Theresa May did a very balanced, very limited criticism saying it was wrong. For then the president to tweet and criticise and belittle our Prime Minister um, following a perfectly reasonable objection is demeaning and disrespectful to our country. It comes to a point where it's part, it is a matter of self-respect as much as it is a matter of policy that we cannot allow foreign nations to just walk over us, act in a way that is completely contrary to our national interest and show us a complete disrespect and disregard and do nothing about it. So, what would I have liked on the Jerusalem thing? I would have liked the Saudi Arabian... Um, I would have liked our statement to sound a bit more like the Saudi Arabian... Um, statement, I think it is getting to the point where we need to review the level of cooperation on an intergovernmental level. So another example, of course, was when, um, after the Manchester attacks, our um, intelligence was leaked um, that we had provided to the New York Times, now, or the Washington Post, I can't remember who it was. Um, And there was a short suspension of intelligence sharing after that. That's a completely reasonable um, approach to take, and I think I want to see more measures like that that make it very, very clear that in circumstances where our national interests are harmed and we are disrespected by a foreign nation, there will be there will be there will be repercussions. How how dangerous is this? Is my is my last question on this really? Is given what the reaction has been around the Arab world to this announcement from Donald Trump? Mm. So there's been the leader of Hamas has called for a day of rage uh, today, Friday, and said it should be the the first day of the Intifada against the occupier. Um, Another quote, the same guy says, the leader of uh, Ishmael Haniya, I probably said that wrong, he's the leader of Hamas, saying, We've given instructions to all Hamas members and to all its wings to be fully ready for any new instructions or orders that may be given to confront this strategic danger. Meanwhile, from uh, Fatah, the, um, the rival movement to Hamas, leader of that has said, We're going to declare the, U- the US disqualified as a co sponsor of any peace process or political process. So th- there's that whole thing about any prospect of peace talks being further away. But more than that, the Hamas statement in particular is very worrying because that sort of suggests, first of all, violence in the Middle East, quite mm-hmm. possibly, but also an increased danger of violence over here or in the US and, and, and its allies. So how worried should we be that this has made our own society more dangerous? Well, it's left a, left a place where there's American flags burning in the, uh, burning in the street. Um, <clears throat> I don't think we know the full extent to the uh, to the repercussions of this. Um, as mentioned, there's going to be a coordinated effort uh, today on Friday that we'll see and observe and find out about. In terms of the repercussions for us here in the UK, mm. I imagine there'd be little uh, or minimal. Um, the, it's clear who the aggressor is in this situation. It's clear who the target of anger is. Um, you just hope it doesn't have any effects in, te- in Tel Aviv where the British embassy is based or any British officials who are uh, elsewhere abroad. What we should look at here, as opposed to just what the British impact is, let's look at the impact in the US and let's look, try and figure out a cause of this. Well, I know I spoke about donors earlier on, but what is also clear is that this is a symptom also of having a State Department that's vastly ill-equipped with the human capital required to fill out, fulfill the, uh, the requirements that has been going for many, many years in the US having quite a significant foreign policy um, around impact in various areas around the world. Rex Tillerson has systematically um, taken apart the State Department in this kind of revamping, restructuring, using that as the word. However, 
what it's meant is led to quite a vast resignation or like early retirement of several senior um, State Department officials who have the rank of who have the diplomatic rank of a three-star general. They are gone. That knowledge has disappeared from the U.S. foreign policy setting. You have swathes of undersecretaries that are um, that are Senate approved, but Senate approvable positions that have not been fulfilled and no one's been nominated for. You have a dearth of talent wanting to enter the State Department because why would they want to work for an agency where their val- their talent is not valued? At the moment, U.S. foreign policy is going through a situation where they do not have the, they're lacking the, they're going to get to a situation where they are lacking the knowledge and the capability to be able to inform the president or whoever they may be of the key uh, levels of intelligence of um, the, the key arguments that lead, that, are, that lead to decisions that also inform decisions. Mm-hmm. And that is a dire si- situation. And the the funny thing about that is it's not even, it's not even a, a, a stable, consistent um, downsizing, if you like, of, of, oh. of the State Department and the intelligence communities. Rex Tillerson, according to a lot of reports, is possibly on his way out. Trump's yep. fallen out with him. He wants to replace him with Mike Pompeo, who's the CIA director. And then also, you've got Trump out openly criticising the FBI, saying it's oh, it's a shadow of what mm. it used to be, purely because they're currently investigating him. Yep. Uh, it, it's not a good time to be involved in American foreign policy. No, I think, and I think I think the thing the British angle to this is there is a void to fill there um, in yeah. terms of can anyone sorry Josh, can anyone fill that with, with regard to Israel and Palestine is there any way that the you know the peace process there can advance if the USA is not one of the key brokers in that system because if they're going to if they are going to abdicate their position as a as a player in that in that realm. Can anyone fill that void, or does it just mean everything's on hold until there's a new administration? I think the advantage the US brings to being a peace broker in that situation is they're able to exert influence over Israel that no one else can exert. That is true. Having said that, I still think there is a role um, for other Western powers, for France, United Kingdom and Germany, to step up and take a role in global affairs that, frankly, they have totally and utterly... Um, abandoned to the United States over the last 20, 30 or 40 years or whatever. And I actually think, you know, there is a real need for Western leadership in the world right now. The United States are not going to provide it. We are in a position to contribute to that, as is France, as is Germany. And I actually think the European Union powers as a whole should be seeking to do so. Yeah. Right. Now let's uh, move on to our last segment of the day. We're going to talk about one of the big uh, announcements of the week, if you like. It's always something that... um, observers of current affairs look forward to which is the announcement of this year's time magazine person of the year or in this year's case people of the year time magazine has given that award to the silence breakers as they call them the women who have come forward uh, about sexual harassment first of course in the case of harvey weinstein but then that has expanded as we know into many parts of public life um reaction first of all to that decision is that the right choice is that who you would have gone with uh, as person of the year, if you were the editor of Time magazine, if so, why? If not, why not? I think so. I think that um, awareness and discussion and revulsion at sexual harassment and assault has been one of the defining themes of this year. I think it's one of the few positives you can take out of 2017 is that actually it's a subject which finally is being discussed, is being condemned, and hopefully will start to be addressed. And I think the women that time nominated that initially initially brought this claim to public attention um, deserve an enormous amount of credit for that because I'd imagine it took an enormous amount of courage. Is that, Alex, do you think this is the defining story of 2017? When people look back on the choice of person of the year in 2017 and it, when it was the silence breakers, will people look back and go, yeah, you know what, they are the people who, with, with 10 years or 20 years hindsight, they are the people who actually changed the world the most in 2017? I think, as Josh said, it's kind of like a divergent moment Mm. where uh, the impact of... This is probably arguably one of the largest impacts of 2017. Uh, The ramifications of what had happened this year will be felt going forward. It's one of those... I I think it's one of those things where, uh, as a result of the actions this year, the discussions that have been provoked will stay and continue to be had going forward. And if you look at the look at the criteria that they'll be going with, it's a person of the year that fulfills every single element of it, and it's a very good decision. What if we were to look at only Britain? Because obviously, Time Magazine is is covering 
or from an American perspective, granted, but covering the world and picking its person of the year based on a worldview. If we were saying who would be the person of the year or people of the year in terms of who has changed British society most, would we still say it's these silence breakers, these women who've come forward with uh, accusations of sexual harassment? Would it be someone else? Is there a political figure? Who do you think is... Uh, even if you can't pick one, who's in the running? Do you know who it is? It is the winner of the YouGov poll for who would be the best Prime Minister. Don't know. <laughs> we are in a we are in a, a, a age of voids of uncertainty and of completely bland, useless public servants. So I, I literally can't name anyone. I cannot name a single distinguished or impressive person that stands out for the whole year in Westminster. I can't. Cor- Corbyn. I mean, would, no, is Corbyn? No, no. Is Corbyn? Well, no, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. We've already discussed Corbyn today. I'm not saying I think Corbyn is a, is a genius or anything. I'm saying in terms of changing the direction of our country Corbyn's campaign during the election has fundamentally changed the, comp- the composition of our government and has therefore changed things no Corbyn did not change the direction of this country he didn't, cha- he didn't he didn't what he did is he robbed us of any direction whatsoever he's broken the rudder on the ship we're flailing around we have no idea where we're going or what we're doing or, or what, what you know what government policy is we don't have any policy we don't have any direction that's, that that's, that's his defining achievement. I'm not saying it's his fault. It's not. It's not a moral judgment. I'm saying that is the Corbyn effect. Mm-hmm. He's never, and that's all he'll ever be. That's all he's capable of. He can't win an election. He's he unelectable. Can't govern. I think yeah. that's the problem. Like, what's being talked about, I, even if you have discussions with people who are in the Labour Party at the moment in terms of HQ and the things that are there. Firstly, political environment in the HQ, but that's a side point. I was at the CBI last week and they were talking about how they've started talking to the Labour Party, they're starting talking to people there, and they, they believe that Labour are getting ready for government. That's not a Corbyn decision. That is a decision of people within the Labour Party, people within this, their Labour Party establishment, whether that be John McDonnell or others, saying they're thinking, okay, fuck, we need to have a credible thing going forward on economic policy and putting that in place. It's not a Corbyn Effect. If you're looking for the cause of these things, if you're looking for the person who's had the biggest effect in Britain, politically wise, it is Theresa May and the people behind her who made the decision to call the election. If you want the single factor that has determined and has caused on this tree diagram of clusterfuck, the original point is the calling of that election. And then everything else comes from there. Does it not? What, what is the, not person of the year, but what is the biggest story of the year for the, for Britain, is it the general election? Is it Grenfell Tower? Is it is it the ongoing Brexit negotiations? What is the if you can't pick a person? I know you yeah. talked about voids, but what is the defining story? Of the I tell year? you what, they should be the defining story of the year should be the fact that 150,000 children are going to die in Yemen in this war. Meanwhile, British armed company made four point six billion pounds out of it. The defining story should be the fact that there is a genocide going on. In Myanmar, none of that's being spoken about. I don't know what the defining story will be. Probably Harry's engagement, you know? I think that is... Really? Probably, yeah, maybe that. Maybe, maybe Brexit. Um, and do you know what? Grenfell's such a good example of this. Grenfell is like... This is what is wrong with, with our society now and our country. And like, this is why we've got this political apathy. Horrific event. Horrific event at a time where... Poverty, social um, mobility, all these things were so present in the public conscience. And then people are burned to death in their flats. Many people would say as a result, you know, as a result of the circumstances they're born into. And people tweeted about it and there were a couple of protests and there were lots of kind of, you know, expressed anger. And what's changed? Nothing. Why hasn't it changed? Because people, people send a tweet or they make a Facebook status or some of them, if they can be asked, go to a protest. And nothing happens. There's no longevity. It just, nothing changes. It's the, totally fucking pointless. The entire, the underlying issue, the, the government have tried to deal with, of attempts to say, oh, we're dealing with cladding or those kind of things. That's not the underlying issue. Yeah, exactly. For Grenfell. The underlying issue is how you have a council that is, uh, maybe slightly sweeping, serving the purposes of the kind of elite in their constituency, the wealthy people who exert the influence over them and their actions and whatever, as opposed to serving the more general population in Kensington, where you have people who are living in places like Grenfell, what Grenfell was in the areas and in the kind of uh, um, verging on economic depravity in terms of the UK perspective. 
that is the issue with Grenfell Tower. That is the issue that should have been taken forward. And it entered the public discourse for two weeks. Yeah, and then gone. it's gone. And, and it hasn't shaped anything further forward. If anything, that should be Labour seizing on that, pushing forward on these kind of issues that then make it untenable for a conservative government who favour, who inherently favour the people that the, the council did over those who were victims of. That's an inherent thing within that current snapshot of the Tory party, that current snapshot of what the Kensington Conservative Party was at that time. And that has not permitted... Okay, but hang on, is, is it... You're, you're blaming the opposition there, right? Or, or you're blaming the Conservatives and the opposition. That you're blaming politicians for a lack of... Lack of action. Josh was saying it's, it's public apathy. So, it's, so. it's both. It's both. It's, it, but but the, the, the public apathy leads to politicians getting away with whatever they want to do, mm. or, or not not necessarily taking action on, on observing issues and making taking that in action upon that. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll actually come back to this subject of public. I was going to ask you what's causing public apathy, but that's too big of a subject when we've only got two minutes left on yeah. the show. But we'll, maybe we'll come back to that another day at the end of the year because I think that's an interesting. Uh, Subject. Let's briefly broaden this back out. We talked. I brought it back. In, I brought it in to talk about a, a British person of the year or story of the year. What we haven't done really is. That I think you both basically agreed with the the uh, the yeah. proposition of having these these silence breakers as Times Person of the Year internationally. Then who should be who would be second place if it wasn't for that story? Who else are the big influencers worldwide who should be who, who should have been in the running for that award? Putin. Putin, why? I think I think I think the influence that Putin has exerted on the world stage for the last five years is greater than any other statesman um, on the world stage, which is extraordinary when you think that Russia has an economy smaller than Italy. Um, I think, in terms of the Syria crisis, in terms of the Middle East, um, I think Russia is the most important player right now. Um, China? What in Syria? No, worldwide. I think well, I meant specifically in, in the Middle East. Um, okay. Actually, I tell you who it should be. I tell you who it would be. It'd be the president of China, um, who is Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping, who's just been written to the Chinese constitution, um, who's basically guaranteed an indefinite tenure, um, who basically has got to the stage where he is as permanent a feature on the Chinese political stage as Mao was at the height of his power, um, and is probably the most powerful Chinese leader since Mao. So it'd be him. That's the future impact, but I think Josh is again. I, I would be more inclined towards what Putin's played. Putin's played an absolute blinder in terms of a influence, b shaping narratives uh, in political discourse, c shaping the public thought as well. Um, like, what about, about sorry, I think it, it was I think it was banded around that the Russian security and um, spy establishment is larger than the entire special forces security mm. establishment plus general kind of army um, and navy air force of the, the UK they've got they're spending vast swathes of money on undermining the west undermining uh, political discourse that it's disruptive and whilst you cannot perhaps gauge that factor i think the influence they've had over this year specifically is grand also yeah, and also, let's remember, Russia is, as I say, a largely impoverished country with an economy smaller than um, Italy, who, and it is Russia that has dominated yeah. the political scene in the United States since Trump was elected and beforehand. All right, we've got seconds left, but let me throw one more name in. Emmanuel Macron, because arguably, granted his, his popularity has dipped in France as the year has gone on, but people don't underestimate the importance of that election win that he had at the start of the year when there was a danger of France swinging to the far right. And what he did, at least in the short term, it remains to be seen how long that lasts, was to unite the European Union, the European project, in a way that it had been fundamentally damaged by Brexit the previous year. Yeah, and I think he's a good, uh, he's a good example of the centre triumphing. Um, I don't think he's... I mean, perhaps in a domestic French sense and perhaps even in a pan-European sense, I don't think he's, he's wielded a kind of um, world influence um, thus far. I think he's very much the junior partner to Merkel when it comes to international affairs. Yeah, I think that's what people see as well. And I think also Mer uh, he's struggling... Well, both, <laughs> both Macron and Merkel are struggling on a domestic front at the moment. Mm. So that dearth of leadership on an international stage has taken... America out of the out of the uh, out of the, the fray. If we count the, if we 
take their efforts to be counterproductive. The UK are nowhere to be seen. France is Macron dealing... Sorry, a terrible French there. Macron... Sorry. Is Macron dealing locally rather than internationally focused? Merkel has to sort her shit out with with her junior partner in the uh, Grand Coalition. Mm -hmm. And what's left to the world? Trudeau, where, yes, they have some foreign policy clout, but not in the interventionist manner, not in the, this is shit, so we're going to come in and fix this for you and help you fix it. In the in the in in the way that the US, UK, and other European powers have done in the past, not not being um, properly interventionist, perhaps, but in some sense they were, but also but like helping out with issues. That's not what Canada's role is in the world, and Trudeau does not want to shape it that way. So Russia, arguably, has helped cause all of those dearth of leaderships, whereas China has not entered into the foray of that. So in that sense of the balance of the two, Putin wins. All right, we're out of time. Thank you uh, both for being here. We just before we go, our standard uh, reminders. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Update the State. Uh, we're also on our blog site, updatethestate.org. You can catch us on both SoundCloud and iTunes. Links for both of those are in the description. And that's just about going to do it. We'll be back next week. Uh, Alex, Josh, thank you for uh, being with me. I've been Dave Bradshaw, and you've been listening to the Update the State podcast. <laughs>